ourselves some children They all be running wild Welcome to you all. I'm John Rosemond, and this is the first or introductory episode of my new podcast series beginning, oh, I don't know, uh, sometime late March, uh, April of 2023 is when you'll be listening to this in all likelihood, in which I will expose the many, many lies psychology my profession has told and continues to tell concerning human beings, children, childering in particular, and attempt in my own countercultural way to help you recognize how psychology has poisoned the public mind and especially the minds of many, if not most, parents in America and begin to set things right again in your own home. If you're interested in learning more about my mission, my ministry to families, check out my websites at John Rosemond, there's a D on the end of that, .com and parentguru.com. Send me an email if you'd like. Share ideas for a future podcast with me. Tell me how you like this one. When is the pendulum going to swing in the other direction? A fellow recently asked, referring to supposed back and forth swings in childering attitude and practice that supposedly take place every few generations from authoritarian to permissive, then back to authoritarian, back to permissive, and so on. It's an excellent, excellent question, actually, one that gets right to the heart of the matter. The short answer is, uh, this may surprise you, there is no parenting pendulum. There never has been. The radical shift in the popular attitude toward children and parental responsibilities that took place in America, and at the time in America only, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, was unprecedented both historically and culturally. Up until then, in every culture on the planet, children were reared according to traditions that were thousands of years old. In every culture, it was axiomatic that parents raised children the way they themselves had been raised. That generation-to-generation practice ensured that virtually everyone agreed on how children should be raised and that childering attitudes and practices were transmitted stably from generation to generation. In other words, prior to the postmodern psychological parenting revolution that took place in America in the late 60s and early 70s, childering was not progressive. Childering was not progressive because in America and Western civilization in general, those childering traditions 
were solidly grounded in biblical understandings, and need I point out that the Bible is not a progressive document? We are in danger today of forgetting that the first immigrants to America were seeking to found and build societies that reflected as closely as possible God's original moral design for mankind as set forth in the Ten Commandments. In every traditional culture, the primary objective of parents raising children was to train them, children, to the values and conventions of the culture in question. Thus, the fact that child-rearing practices were passed along reliably from one generation to the next assured to the greatest degree possible that the fundamental principles that defined the culture in question would remain in place even as technologies, demographics, economics, and so on and so forth, even as those things changed within the culture. I was born in 1947. That makes me an early baby boomer and a member of the last generation of American children to be raised the old way, according to the traditions established by the original founders of this country. Hear me clearly, folks. America was not built on the backs of slaves. It was built on the word of God. But human beings built America. Human beings did that. Therefore, it had its flaws. I'm also a member of the first generation of adult Americans to depart radically from tradition when it came to raising children. And because my wife and I experienced the old way as children and were seduced primarily by my graduate school education into practicing the new way with our children, at least initially for the first 10 years of our parenthood, I have a clear understanding of what happened to bring about the problems American parents are having in doing something God equipped human beings to do, raise children. The problems that American parents today are having with raising children are relatively unique to the new way of raising children, which is something called parenting. Mind you, Pre-1960s child-rearing and post-1960s parenting are not one and the same. They are anything but, in fact, they are as different as different can be. I grew up in the 1950s. I was three when the 1950s began and 13 when that decade ended. The first thing to understand is that in the 1950s, there was no debate over how children should be raised. Agreement prevailed. Husband and wife agreed. Parents and teachers agreed. Neighbors agreed. Everyone agreed. Exceptions to the agreement were few and far between. We 1950s kids were held to one standard in the home, in the neighborhood, and at school, and there were no excuses accepted when one of us stepped over the proverbial line, when we violated those standards. As a child in the 1950s, I didn't know any other child who threw tantrums in public places or in the classroom, 
I never, not once, heard another child openly defy adult authority. Yes, 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 yes. We, and especially the boys, we tried to get away with rule violations, mischief, when we thought adults wouldn't find out, but we did not ever, I mean ever, in face-to-face situations, tell an adult authority figure that we were not going to obey an instruction. The, you're not the boss of me, you can't make me, and I'm not going to response, which is virtually built into the toddler, had been trained out of us by the time we were three years old, which is why we were able to be taught successfully in what today would be considered criminally overcrowded classrooms. For example, I came to first grade without having attended kindergarten. My first grade class consisted of 50, that's five zero, children and one teacher. She had no age. She didn't need one, in fact. Most of us came to first grade not knowing our ABCs. Isn't that amazing? Our mothers were not worried from the time we began to talk about our school performance. Our moms weren't conducting flashcard drills with us when we were toddlers. Our mothers felt they had a job to do, and they felt also that our teachers had a job to do, and the two jobs were fairly separate, although supportive of one another. Now, can you imagine that? Fifty five- and six-year-old children and one teacher. That wasn't atypical, by the way. Over the course of my career, I've met women who taught first-grade classes of as many as 95 children in the 1950s. You heard me right, 95, 95, 95. That would be a first-grade class in Allentown, Pennsylvania in 1954. The women who taught these overcrowded first-grade classes all report that discipline was not a major issue. They also report, furthermore, that most of the children in question learned their ABCs during the first month or so of first grade. Our academic pumps had not been primed by our mothers or preschools before before we came to first grade. In areas of the country where kindergarten existed, it was not universal in my home state of South Carolina. It was non-academic. People generally felt that six was early enough to be teaching children reading, writing, and arithmetic. Okay, so to fathom this, we early boomers sitting in overcrowded classrooms where no one received significant individual attention and everyone was held to the same academic standards regardless of ability level, We were reading at a much higher level than today's kids by the end of grade one. And we outperformed today's kids in every subject area at every grade level. How? Under what are today's considered highly adverse classroom circumstances Did we manage that? Simple. We were well-behaved. We came to school already disciplined. Our teachers didn't start at square one with us where our discipline was concerned. The worst-behaved child was the kid who spoke without raising his hand. I'm serious. We respected adult authority. 
As one of the aforementioned teachers told me, those kids came to first grade already disciplined. I didn't spend significant time correcting misbehavior, John. I taught. To say all of that succinctly, we early boomers, by the time we came to first grade, had already developed a healthy fear of women. The women in question were our mothers. They, our mothers, did not have to scream at us, ask us to do something numerous times, offer rewards, threaten punishment, count to three, and all the other dysfunctional, silly things so many of today's moms are doing. Our mothers just told us in no uncertain terms where the lines were drawn and what they expected, and we might not have known what would happen if we deviated significantly from our mother's expectations, but we knew it wouldn't be good. We knew that. Children fear adults who inhabit their natural authority naturally. I'm using the term fear, by the way, in its biblical sense. We early boomers were not terrified of our mothers and fathers. There were exceptions, of course, but I have to speak in generalities here. Their presence didn't cause us to curl up into fetal positions. We simply had enormous appreciation and respect for their authority, their power in our lives, and their willingness to exercise it. My mother, for example, a single parent for most of the first seven years of my life, never yelled at me. I don't even remember ever being punished by her. Yet I feared her in the biblical sense, and I did what she told me to do when she told me to do it. Here's a personal example of childering in the 1950s and before. I happened to be the most ill-behaved child in my seventh grade class. The class photo shows 40 kids. My relentless offense was that I made the class burst out laughing at least five times a day by saying something ridiculous concerning the lesson. I wasn't defiant. I wasn't disrespectful. I didn't throw tantrums. I simply made the class laugh. It was a sport for me. The additional problem, I was the best student, academically speaking, in the class. In the whole school, most likely. In February of that year, my parents went to the school for what I thought was a routine parent-teacher conference. They came home, sat me down, and informed me that they had agreed to the following plan. If I disrupted the class one more time, if I made the class laugh, one more time, between then, February, and the end of the school year, one more time, mind you, I was going to repeat the seventh grade. They were dead serious, and I knew it. They would have had no problem if I were to miss my, misbehave my way into repeating the seventh grade. Well, and somewhat needless to say, my ADHD or compulsive uh, laughter-causing disorder, or whatever you'd call it these days and medicate the kid for, my ADHD was cured in one day. 
I made it to the eighth grade on time because my parents and teachers made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Today, a child like me would be diagnosed, medicated, given multiple accommodations at school. He'd be in therapy, most likely, helping him explore and identify his feelings and learn how to manage them better. And he would get no better at all. The ludicrous and counterproductive ways chronically misbehaving children are dealt with today would be hilarious if they weren't so utterly tragic. I told you earlier that pre-1960s children, child rearing that is, pre-1960s child rearing and post-1960s parenting are as different as watermelons and acorns. Pre-1960s, children were not allowed to have major behavior problems. They weren't allowed to. And it worked. As a kid, I didn't know any child with a major behavior problem. You know, what did I do? I made the class laugh. Is that a major behavior problem? Not by today's standards. Today, we unwittingly allow children to have major behavior problems. The culture accommodates them and continues to accommodate them well into, child, uh, well into adulthood. A 30-year-old gets a job and promptly tells his new employer that he needs them to cut him all sorts of slack because what? He has the most fake diagnosis ever invented by the mischievous mental health industry, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I haven't met a kindergarten teacher in over 30 years who does not report that she has been hit, kicked, spit on, and had various hard objects thrown at her by one or more of her students that year, the year I'm talking to her. I recently spoke with a public school principal and kindergarten teacher who told me that student aggression toward teachers is the biggest problem they're dealing with. Preschool, preschool, student aggression toward teachers is the biggest problem preschools are dealing with. The kids in question, by the way, are diagnosed by mischievous mental health professionals as having bipolar disorder of childhood. And these same professionals then tell the parents that their kids have biochemical imbalances inherited probably from their father's side of the family. Oh, really? Remember, I never witnessed a fellow schoolmate have a bipolar meltdown. No one my age that I've ever spoken to on this subject remembers that sort of thing either. So where did the mystery bipolar genes come from? How are these supposed biochemical imbalances passed on through their paternal ancestors? By the way, if you were to ask a mental health professional those questions, he would answer, and I quote, blah, 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 blah. What in tarnation is going on here? The tarnation is easily explained, by the way. American parents no longer raise kids the way we early boomers were raised. To us early boomers, today's parenting looks nothing like the way we were raised, in fact, and I mean nothing. 
We early boomers think postmodern psychological parenting is ludicrous. The things today's parents are doing from the time their kids are young infants are setting the stage for huge problems that were small potatoes in the 50s and before. Then they agree to medicate their kids as if the problems are a function of faulty biology, a premise that's never, and I mean never, been confirmed, by the way. We early boomers grew up in adult-centric families. Today's families are child-centric. We learned early on that we were expected to pay attention to our parents. Today's kids learn early on that it's their parents' job to pay attention to them. We had chores every day. Today's kids have adult-directed after-school activities and very few chores of any. Today's mothers and fathers treat their kids as if they are some manner of royalty. We boomers were treated like second-class citizens. Therefore, we aspired to become adults. And because we aspired to become adults, we emancipated much earlier and much more successfully than today's kids. And our mental health was 10 times better than today's kids' mental health. 10 times. And that is statistically verifiable. The fact of the matter is, folks, you can't raise children in two entirely different ways and arrive at the same outcome. And pre-1960s child rearing and post-1960s parenting are two entirely different ways. I'll say it again. You cannot raise children in two entirely different ways and arrive at the same outcome. If you raise children in two entirely different ways, you will arrive at two entirely different outcomes. Back to my original point. Square one. There is no child-rearing pendulum. There is a right way to raise children, and then there are numerous wrong ways to raise children. You heard me correctly. There is one right way to raise kids and numerous wrong ways. The numerous wrong ways include attachment parenting, grace-based parenting, gentle parenting, democratic parenting, and on and on they go. These numerous wrong ways rule American parenting today, which is why there's no longer any agreement on how to raise kids. Neighbors don't agree. Parents and teachers don't agree. Husbands and wives don't agree. The women on the view don't agree with the folks on the five. How did that happen? How did we get to the sorry place? Answer, around the year 1970, American parents stopped listening to their elders when it came to raising children and began listening to people in the mental health professions. I'm one of those people. Well, sort of, kind of, superficially. I'm licensed as a psychologist by the North Carolina Psychology Board. But as you will discover and be repeatedly reminded of if you become a regular listener to this podcast, when it comes to children and families, I don't agree with my colleagues in the mental health professions about much of anything, if anything. I am the thorn. Not mind you, one of many, 
but the thorn in the side of the mental health industry in America. A bunch of fakers if there ever was one. They don't like me. Surprise. Because I say they're wrong about pretty much everything, and they have yet to come up with a credible defense. Psychology has been a wrecking ball in American culture, folks. It has created a boatload of problems and solved virtually none, and that is especially true when it comes to children and families. Keep listening. In upcoming episodes of this podcast, I'm going to tell you why psychology is fake science, why it dispenses fake theories, fake diagnoses, fake therapies, fake explanations, fake medications. It's all fake. And why psychology does not even qualify to be what is called a restricted profession. In other words, why it should not require a license to practice issued by a government-sanctioned licensing agency. So sit down and hold on to your hats. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth about the mental health industry in America. And I'm going to tell you the truth about children and how to raise them to love their neighbors, which is pretty much all parents need to accomplish. Because when they accomplish that relatively simple objective, everything else will fall into its proper place. I hope you've enjoyed this inaugural episode of this podcast, which I'm calling Because I Said So, an apt title, if there ever was one. Please join me on a regular basis. You won't regret it. And please tell all your friends and followers and fellow freedom fighters about this podcast. They won't regret it either. Until next time, be well and happy and remember to thank the Lord for all he's done for you, whether you realize all that he's done for you or not. Sayonara.